Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm speaking with Lynn Walker. Now, Lynn has a fascinating story. She shares her own story, and she shares the story of her father. She has two different books, Midnight Calling and then Breaking Midnight. Midnight Calling is her story, the story of a drug smuggler's daughter, and then Breaking Midnight is the story of her father. And her father was a drug smuggler, but he also was an undercover narcotics agent, so This was a a very fascinating story. Her story is fascinating when it comes to, you know, growing up and having your father leave and not knowing why when when things started going bad. And then also her struggle with with drugs herself um, in high school and then also struggling with drugs once her father, he was he was eventually arrested for for the drug smuggling, got out of prison and then she started using drugs with him. Um, so the, her story uh, that she shares in uh, in Midnight Calling is a is a fascinating one. Um, but then a year later, she decided to write down her father's story because that's certainly a fascinating story as well. How did a person who was once a Sunday school teacher, a devoted father, um, a loving husband? turn into a drug smuggler? How did someone who was on a narcotics squad and trying to stop drugs from entering the country, stop drugs from being trafficked, then turn into somebody who was smuggling them himself? So Lynn spent quite a bit of time with her father once she got older. She got uh, you know sober as well, and she got older and started talking to her father about his story what happened to him, what made him do the things he did, what his experiences were like in the life that he, he led. Uh, so so these are, are just fascinating conversations, fascinating stories. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about both of the books and why she decided to write them. We're going to just dive just surface level into the books and, and maybe why he did the things he did and why she did the things she did. Um, the process of writing the books and, you know, whether it was, was cathartic for her, what it was like writing your own memoir and, and sharing kind of your your deepest struggles and, and uh, the pathway out of those things. Uh, we're going to talk about just self-publishing books, all kinds of stuff. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, definitely a, an interesting topic. So without further ado, here is Lynn Walker. I'm here today with Lynn Walker. Miss Walker, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Jackson? I'm good. I'm good. Hardest question of the evening. Just introduce yourself. Oh, okay. So um, Lynn Walker, the author of two books. My first one is Midnight Calling, a memoir of a drug smuggler's daughter. Memoir, obviously, true story. And then the second one, uh, just out in January, is my dad's story. And that one's Breaking Midnight, a true story. And that's his story as a pretty successful undercover narcotics agent who ended up on the other side smuggling drugs, you know, all through Miami um, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And I want to just briefly get into, into, to your story. I think it kind of starts 
when you were young. So I, I know that your your father kind of a lot of things happened with him right around when you were eight years old. Uh, that's when he I think he left a note in the mailbox and and left. But I want to talk about uh, I guess life before before that because you know he was a, a narcotics agent. You know the beginning of your book talks about you know you kind of idolizing him and you helping him clean your, his guns. And it was just a totally different world. So talk about pre everything happening kind of life as, as Lynn Walker growing up. Yeah. I had a really idyllic childhood, right? I had a older brother. We grew up in a blue collar suburb South of Miami and we were free to roam around the neighborhood as long as we didn't cross Dixie Highway or Caribbean Boulevard. Those were my dad's, you know, boundaries for us. And I had a stay-at-home mom because that's what a lot of moms did back in the 70s. And um, dad was a, a you know, highly successful undercover narcotics agent for the Miami-Dade Public Safety Department. And he was also a very doting father. He was very protective of us. He taught Sunday school. He taught our Sunday school classes. His dad was a very religious man. He was a minister. And and life was pretty good. And then, I mean, you know, dad taught us to shoot guns and clean guns, and we sailed in the Keys. And then, yeah, as you said, when I was eight, dad literally snuck out of the house in the dark of night and left a note in the mailbox for mom. And I never really knew what happened to him until I was in high school and he went to prison for smuggling. He got popped with 12,000 pounds of marijuana. Mm. <laughs> now I live in a state where marijuana is legal now, but 12,000 pounds is never legal. That's a, it's a plane full, a Convair mm. 440 airplane full, you know, of 12,000 pounds of marijuana. And he was in prison while I was in high school. Um, you know, but by that time, I actually had already developed my own drug and alcohol abuse habit. And so it really ended up being the perfect setup for me to latch on to, you know, the only connection that was left to my dad when he got out of prison, and that was cocaine. He met his big connection in, in prison, federal prison down in Florida, a man, a Colombian man who was running his family ops from the federal pen. Mm -hmm. And he got out on parole and was smuggling again by then it was the 80s it was all those co cocaine cowboy days so by then it was all cocaine and I was 18 and my brother was 21 and he walks back into our lives and was dishing out his cocaine and I mean I was no innocent kid by then you know I was had my own drug a uh, pretty heavy drug habit and it got pretty bad and so within about three years after about three years of abusing that coke with dad and my brother you know I really pretty much lost everything and everyone I ever cared about. And I just had to choose, you know, my father and my life. So obviously <laughs> I chose life because here I live to tell about it. I you went know, to write about it. So yeah, that's in a nutshell without that, too many spoilers. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is in a, in a nutshell. And I want to kind of just go back to you. You talked about how, you know, eight years old, he, he left and you didn't really know what the world would happen with him until you were in high school. So during those years, I mean, what was that like? I, I, so were you just told you weren't told anything or, 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 I mean, it has to take a toll on somebody. You know, you talked about how he was a, you know, a doting father, you had all this stuff and then all of a sudden, you know, it changed pretty rapidly. So um, talk a little bit about, about that. That had to ha play quite an effect. Yeah. And, you know, I, I you know, half marriage is ending divorce now, but, and I'm not saying this is, I'm not blaming this for anything, but that, 
that, I mean, obviously within a, so within a year, my parents were divorced and literally three weeks after their divorce was final, <clears throat> excuse me, he remarried um, a stewardess. That's what they called them back then. And she was very much, <clears throat> you know, what stewardesses had to be. She was beautiful, very voluptuous woman and Southern Belle. And, you know, eventually he, within another year, I think he had a, another daughter, my half sister. And, I, you know, I, it just really flipped my world upside down. We didn't know anybody who was divorced. I knew nobody who was divorced. And um, he was never the same. I mean, he eventually he would, you know, not show up for weekend visits. He we, he never called. We never knew where he was. He didn't tell my mom. She didn't have a clue what was going on. I think within a couple of years after the divorce, he left the police force. I think it was, so it would have been about a year after, maybe a year and a half after he left, he left the police force. We didn't know why. I know now why, but, um, and then things got really different. I mean, he was, he was carrying around big wads of cash. He would want to take me shopping for jewelry. I was like 10, you know, I didn't want to shop for jewelry. He, you know, was just very a different person. And I just, it could have just set my world to wobbling is what I say. Like I just never, I, it was the beginning of me starting to feel like something really bad is about to happen. That's how I felt. And a little did I know, right. I, but I really felt like something bad was about to happen. And, um, you know, I didn't, I, I, I just didn't know he, no one knew. Well, I think his second wife knew, but my mom, my brother, and I didn't know what was going on until he got arrested. So, so it was very confusing and very kind of a dark time for me. So, and my mom's great. She was great. She was there, but she had to start working full time. So, and our house got a little chaotic. My brother started, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol and was pretty menacing. So yeah, it was kind of a scary time for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that was going to be a question. So, you know, you're saying that until the arrest happened, that really no one, no one knew. It was just a complete surprise. Yeah. No one knew. No one. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I, in retrospect, you know, my mom says, she, you know, she knew something was drastically different. Like he changed 180. She, but she didn't really. She couldn't comprehend. I mean, he was a very he was a Marine. He was this very dedicated policeman. He took that very seriously. I don't think she could even have conceived that he was sort of on the other side, if you will, or, you know, becoming a dirty cop. So and I had no idea by none whatsoever. You know, I was just chasing after that dad I used to have trying to get him back, you know, like little kids do in divorces, you think they're going to come back. So, um. Right. And did, I, I mean, in this very well could be in that second book that we're going to talk about, but did he ever really kind of explain what made him turn this way? I mean, obviously money is a, it's a powerful thing. It could, it can be because you're trying to provide for a family. You talk about how you're trying to buy your jewelry. It could be because you know, that uh, you just get in too deep and, and owe the wrong person. I just wonder what, what was, what was the reasoning from going from a, you know, a Marine, a straight-laced cop to, you know, the complete opposite side and having that uh, plane full of uh, marijuana. Okay, well, so you have to read Breaking Midnight because <laughs> that's his story. So I don't want to give out any spoilers, but uh, I didn't know until I interviewed him many, many years later, which is what started all the, you know, me writing those books is 
just wondering what happened. But I was in my, I think I was 30 when that started or 20 something, late 20s. And he was 50, something like, you know, 50 something. So I, you know, I never asked, even when we were abusing cocaine together later, I never asked. I, I mean, if I did, I don't ever recall. I think I was, he wasn't very open about it. He just never talked about it. And I think probably later when he did tell me the story, I think he felt probably a lot of, um, I don't know, remorse about it or regret because I think he really did lose himself. And I, you know, I think, again, I don't want to give up spoilers, but being an undercover narcotics agent is very stressful, right? I mean, he had to walk into drug deals in Miami, Florida in the 70s and be a drug dealer. Because if he didn't, he or his partner, his undercover partner would get killed, especially when they started moving up to some big time smugglers, you know, they were moving on a lot of product and it was worth millions of dollars. And so, you know, you just, you couldn't be a Sunday school teacher and a father and a good husband. You had to be a drug dealer. And, um, you know, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of money and a lot of women, you know, and he was a big strapping six foot man. So, you know, he, he got sucked in for sure into that, you know, two lives, right. And it got harder and harder for him to flip that switch and go back to being what probably felt boring, right. To be a Sunday school teacher and a good husband and father when he's wheeling and dealing and, you know, lots of money and booze and, and they drank a lot too. They, in, in 1971, that they passed a law that, um, agents, he, he worked on a federal task force a lot because the, what was then the DEA, I mean, what was then the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, they couldn't keep up with the smuggling. So they would um, work with local police forces to, you know, have more manpower. And so he was Miami-Dade deputy, but he worked for the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. You know, they passed a law that these federal agents could use drugs in the line of duty again, because you couldn't say no. I mean, if you're going to go score some, you know, whatever, you had to act the part. So he, but he didn't like getting loaded on the job and he didn't really like pop, but he drank a lot on, on the job that really helped him stay in that identity, right? The drug dealer. So he developed quite a massive drinking um, habit during that time. And they, and they did use drugs. I mean, never, he never like wanted to smoke pot or heroin, but he would take a hit, you know, and he always said he loved the cocaine, but the cocaine wasn't around as much in the seventies, but when it was, he said he loved that. <laughs> so so yeah. I think he lost himself, right? Basically. Right. Yeah. And it would be a, a, a pretty easy place for that to happen. He's not a narcotics agent and Wichita, Kansas, Miami was kind of in the seventies, eighties, kind of where everything was happening. So yeah, it was, it was, I was down there, um, in November, I took my son down with me. I was a, a a speaker on an author panel in this It's called the keys discovery center. And they were doing a, a, they had a bunch of authors that had written books about smuggling and it was so fun. I mean, fun. You know, I went and looked at all these old, went to all these old places where he used to work, you know, the last chance saloon and um, some of these bars on Miami beach where he used to work undercover. And, you know, this is so many years later, but I could just see how sexy it was, you know, how alluring and fast and intense it must've been, you know, and how, thrilling right thrilling and scary right it must have been i'm sure he was always 
in fight or flight mode, right? So, yeah, it was interesting to see those places. Yeah, yeah, and and never to make any kind of excuses or you know not say how dangerous this is because once things start happening, you know things obviously get extremely dangerous. But it is important, I think, and and that's kind of what your books do too. At a point, is to personify some of these people. I actually have interviewed a undercover narcotics agent retired now um, that talked about this. And the thing that, that was fascinating to me that he talked about was that when he would be in these things, there'd be moments a lot of times with, with these people, some people are just inherently bad, but most people are, are not. And hearing their stories, you know, being with them, realizing just if one little thing would have went different, they wouldn't have made this choice or they wouldn't have got sucked up into this decision if, if they would have done something just a little bit different, this person would have been, you know, in their other life and, and taking their kid to T-ball with them. There's just one little thing that changes somebody's whole course of their life and that, and, uh, you know, they turn into something they can't get out of. Yeah. That's a great description, right? Especially for people or a person like my father who was already living two completely different lives you know I always say life turns on a dime right (laughs) and that's just because of my history with you know drug and alcohol abuse I know how quickly life can change you know one bad decision but when your life depends on it and you're you you have a whole other alter identity that depends on you staying in that identity it's just I'm sure it's very stressful very stressful and I'm surprised they've let young married men and women you know be undercover agents, but I guess, you know, they, they, there's not enough single people to be undercover agents because it's just so hard. It's so hard on, on that entire, you know, family. Yeah. I mean, t- towards the end there, he was really not home a lot because he was, you know, a lot of, well, I didn't see him a lot because a lot of that work is done in the evenings, you know, in the weekends. I mean, I mean, and I'm sure they did lots of drug deals, undercover drug deals during the day too, but you know, things are happening in the evenings in Miami beach and South Florida. So he was gone a lot. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine the the stress of that just in the beginning of your, your book, you know, things happening and him trying to keep you guys away from it. So I feel uh-huh. like that, uh, that just creates a lot of stress when you've got all of these extra, extra components, kids and family, where if you're single, you don't have to worry about, you know, your, yeah. your kids, being at the same place, the same carnival as, uh, as the drug dealers are or something like totally. that. Totally. I, uh, I have a vivid memory of that <laughs> right. Right. and how scary it was. I didn't realize then, you know, but I realize now how scary that would have been for him because that would have blown his cover. Right. So right. you walk around with two little kids. So right. I want to ask you to, you know, at the level that you're, you're comfortable talking about it, and then also not to, to spoil your, your books, but I just wonder, you know, you talked about your own struggle with, with drugs and alcohol. I wonder how much of it you think has to do with the story that, that are laid out in these books, whether, you know, it's because of some of the things that happened. And then once he got out, you know, talked about when he was paroled, that was kind of your connection to him, the connection of, you know, drugs and, and cocaine, it sounds like. Do you think that, you know, this just puts you deeper and deeper into it just at, to form this connection. I mean, obviously there's a lot of psychology behind trying to bond with your parents and some people bond in, in very uh, unhealthy ways. So do you think that that, you know, kind of, I guess, exacerbated the, the problem that you were having? 
Well, I I do believe that addiction is, you know, a genetic. I, I mean, I think I have a physical addiction, right, to drugs and alcohol. I mean, I, I do believe that it's a disease, right? And I believe I probably inherited that from dad. I mean, I'm sure it's there's some genetic predisposition for that. Um, so I, you know, I I don't like to blame. I don't say that you know this rough spot in my childhood made me you know, an addict, but what, you know, what happened is that that feeling like something really bad is going to happen stayed with me until the very first time I smoked a joint. (laughs) And as soon as that stuff finally got my bloodstream, I felt like something really good was about to be happen. was about to happen. And, and that was a, I mean, it was like a big significant shift in my point of view. And, and I felt like, I was about to be happy any minute and I was kind of, you know, depressed. I had moved to a new town, started a brand new school, middle school, didn't know a soul, you know, again, not excuses, but just where I was. And, you know, that started um, a pursuit for me of that feeling. I wanted that feeling that something good was about to happen because it felt so good. And I, I pursued it to any length, right? I mean, that's addiction. And I'm not saying that's everybody's experience, but that was mine. I wanted to get that feeling again. And I pursued it to some pretty scary places, right? Just seeking that next um, high or, or, you know, drunk. You know, addiction takes people to some pretty dark places, especially 14-year-old girls, right? So, um, which is how, how old I was when he started. So, I mean, I think that, who knows? I mean, had dad stayed and stayed on the good side and stayed a good cop. I don't know. I don't know if I ever would have picked up. Maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. So I'll never know. I know I was definitely seeking um, escape from, you know, how I felt and who I felt I was for sure. But I wouldn't say that's his fault. That's just how my life unraveled. I might've ended up being that way anyways. So there are many people that come from very loving, stable families that ended up with horrible addictions. So you know. Right. And you and you're talking about, you know, at 14, the the drinking and the marijuana and stuff. With when he was paroled and you're talking about doing cocaine together, had you done have you had you done cocaine before he had introduced it? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, I was no innocent victim. I mean, it's never cool, I don't think, right, for a parent to give kids drugs, but I mean I was of legal age, but I had already been you know, I was a teen runaway uh, on the, then I was in Columbus, Ohio, you know, the streets of Columbus, Ohio were pretty sketchy. So I was a runaway for not long, but, you know, almost got picked up by pimps, you know, some pretty yucky things happened. (laughs) Um, I sort of was rescued by the local drug dealer. So that was my, my sort of way back home was with this older drug dealer in in the suburb where we lived and he was pretty scary guy he's pretty psychotic in the end but um i you know i used lots of drugs i mean he his name was mark he and i got arrested for breaking and entering you know at 14 maybe i was 15 by then or almost by the time i was 15 um my mom was so afraid that i was gonna die from my drug and alcohol abuse that she took me and my brother to court back then it was called unruly child and she filed charges against us 
for being out of control. So I became a ward of the juvenile court. Mm. And the deal was I had to do exactly what she said and the court appointed social worker, or I would become a ward of the court in juvenile detention. And I had already been in there. I didn't want to go there again. I mean, I was like a 95 pound girl from the suburbs. Some of those girls didn't like that. I mean, they were, you know, <laughs> chucking their shoes at me and stuff. So I didn't want to go back there. So I kind of, you know, just got, you know, I didn't stop. I just got really, really, really sneaky. Um, and then drugs are just easier to get when you're not of legal drinking age. Drugs are easier to get and they're easier to hide from your parents and your court appointed social worker. So I was doing a lot of drugs. I mean, really anything and everything. I never did heroin. I could never stand the thought of putting a needle in my arm, but you know, I would have snorted it if I had it. I used anything and everything. So I had a horrendous drug in alcohol habit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I was very proud of the fact, you know, that I could drink guys bigger than me under the table and I had a huge tolerance. So I was in bad shape. Yeah. I mean, I was holding it together, but I had a huge habit. Yeah. And, you know, you on your Instagram, you posted on this past Mother's Day just about how important your mom is in your life. And I mean, this story between, you know, her her husband leaving her, your your brother you know, having his own issues than your issues. She has, has to have been a very, very strong person at this time. I just couldn't, I couldn't even imagine it. So kudos to her for, for doing what he, she could to keep everything together. Oh, totally. I mean, midnight calling is dedicated to her, you know, yeah. it's totally dedicated to her because she saved my life. She totally saved my life. So yeah. ultimately, so, and I, I don't think I would have made it out if I didn't have her. She was always, I mean, you know, scared and furious but never never wavered in her efforts to try to you know put boundaries on me and my brother and try to stop you know what she saw as pretty downward spiral and you know and she didn't even know the half of it i didn't i asked her not to read the book though she's still alive she lives part-time with us upstairs i have an apartment for her and i asked her not to read it she's like oh don't worry <laughs> you know she lived it she does not want to read it right she yeah. lived that thing you know she well, doesn't want to read about it so yeah but she really wanted me to write my dad's story too um i was really surprised she really wanted that story to be written too so yeah 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 she's the well, before we get to the actual writing of the books, you know, we've got to wrap up that particular part. So, I mean, where are you at in your, your journey in, in, in sobriety? Oh, I have, um, I have not had a drink or drug since February of 1995. Mm. So I have, you know, almost whatever, 28 years of continuous sobriety. And I'm really active in the um, recovery community. It's a big part of my life. So um, I, I, I what well, was one of the things the court made me do when I became a ward of the juvenile court is they made me go to 12 step meetings. And I, so I always say I've gone to those meetings for whatever, dozens of years, 30, 40 years, but I, um, it didn't stick for a long time. So mm -hmm. it was, um, it was a long journey for me to put down the drugs and alcohol. So, right. Right. Yeah. And that wouldn't necessarily always be a question I would ask, but on your Instagram, I feel like you kind of, highlight that pretty well you put a picture of of a national park and then a picture of a bar and say this is what i would have this is where <laughs> i would have been uh you know many years ago so I, I i i thought that that was the case so i'm, I'm really happy to hear that 
I want to talk. I was in, I'm in Banff with my granddaughter, you know, I was having a blast with her and I we're at this bar while we're in the restaurant eating and I'm looking at the bar saying that's where I would have been. I mean, there's this big lumberjack looking guy back there. I'm like, I would have been that bar. That's what I would have seen in Banff, you know, instead I had this great trip with my daughter hiking and eating lots of yummy food. And, but I, it's never far from my mind that, again, life can turn on a dime, you know, and I, who knows if I would even be alive. Right. I was in some pretty dark places. So. Yeah. Well, once I'm going to ask you in a minute, what made you decide to write these books and your experience with that? But you just made me think about, about, uh, you, you talked about your, your daughter. I've interviewed a lot of authors. I've interviewed authors that were in cults as young people or did all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's always an interesting question to learn how much did your your daughter or any other kids that you you have? How much did they know about your story when it came out? Were they mind blown, or had this been something that you'd always told them about, or or what was their relationship with your story once the book came out? Yeah, I, I was very protective of them actually, and I I when I mean they are now eighteen and twenty, and I when Midnight Calling came out, they weren't so that came out in twenty two, so they were whatever I can't remember 17 and 19 or something um I I they okay so they totally knew that I have a, a drug and alcohol abuse history they know that we're very open about that they know we don't drink my husband doesn't either so they know all about that and they um understand you know that I'm involved in you know recovery community um they know about their grandpa I mean they 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 knew him I mean he actually passed away when they were young eight and ten I think so or nine and eleven but so but they knew him and they know his story now and I did ask both my kids not to read Midnight Calling because it's just I mean I just there's a lot of heavy duty stuff in there and I don't know that they would have anyways and I don't know if they did my son was like reading a little bit of it and I said you can't wait that he's like why mom I know it all and I so I put the kibosh on that I said do you want to read about your mother having sex and he's like no (laughs) because you know memoirs are pretty um you know up close and personal that's what memoir are you know and so I don't think he ever finished it and but I totally said they could read Breaking Midnight you know that's their grandpa's story and you know it's it's just a very different story, right? So I don't know. In the end, if they read it, it's not going to hurt anything. There's no secrets in there. So, right. Right. but I but I also wanted to be protective of, of them when they were younger because you know, you know, kids could be impacted by what their parents do or what you know what what the book is about if people read it. So I wanted to be protective of them and their privacy. So. Yeah. So did that, I mean, obviously this is when you were much younger, did that, did that play a part on when you wrote it or what made you decide to write the books when you did and, and what, uh, I guess what went into it? Cause I've talked to tons of people that have interesting stories, but not everybody can write them down in an interesting way, but you certainly yeah. can. So I want to, I want to hear kind of the, the evolution of creating that, yeah. those books. Yeah. You know, I, I was, um, this is before kids. Um, I had, um, I, so I have a practice doing environmental mediation. So I'm a mediator by training. 
And a friend of mine asked me if I would use those mediation skills to work with high school kids. The counselor at the school wanted to run groups for kids whose parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. So I had that experience running groups, but the counselor didn't have any experience with drug and alcohol abuse. So I said, oh, I'd love to. So for several years, I co-facilitated or co-ran these groups for kids whose high school kids whose parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. And I mean, those kids just blew me away. You know, I just, it, it opened up, you know, inside of me, you know, this realization that I, you know, here I could help these kids heal and help them learn to cope and how to not follow their parents' path. And here I still had this broken <clears throat> relationship with my father. I mean, we hardly spoke. I called him on his birthday and like holidays and he didn't really ever call me. And I just got to thinking, you know, I, I didn't want him to die without us ever just me trying to heal that relationship. I knew he was no longer smuggling by then. I knew if you read Midnight Calling, you'll know how. And I, so I figured I was safe and I just, you know, I, I just was, it was kind of burning inside me too. Like I really wanted to know. It was a very compelling story. Like how on earth did this I mean, I've got newspaper articles about awards he got as an undercover narc. How did he end up on the other side? <clears throat> and one day out of the blue, he called me and I, he never called me. And I, I thought, I mean, if he was going in the hospital, he called because he had heart problems. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, nothing. And, you know, can a dad just call his daughter? And I'm thinking, of course, but you never do. And so I, something inside of me said, this is my chance. You got to ask him. So I just said, Hey, you know, someday I'd like to know what, your story, you know, what happened? And he said, well, what do you want to come down and interview me? And I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he got really quiet, you know, and, and he thought for a minute and he said, okay, let's do this. So I didn't have any kids. I popped down there that summer and spent a couple of weeks interviewing him. I recorded it all on tape. So it's cassette tape days. <clears throat> and I thought he was full of shit. I thought for sure he was lying. I mean, the details, some of the details about the cop cases resonated with me because I remembered things. But I thought that, you know, the story about how he ended up on the other side was I just didn't think he would could be honest. And so I started researching. I found his court. I got his court records and I found all these old newspaper articles and they were exactly verbatim as he told it to me. And then I realized, you know, he was telling the truth. Like, that's what he said. He said, this is my legacy to you and I owe it to you, to be honest. So when I realized that, I thought I got to write this down. And I did a lot of technical writing at the time. But I didn't really know how to write dialogue or creative writing. So literally, I took some classes at a community college and started learning how to write create, you know, creative nonfiction mm. and um, started working on that. And it took longer than I thought. You know, I had this growing career and then we had kids, two kids. And so life got busy. But I, w I went down the next summer and, you know, he read a good chunk of it. A lot of it came out that first year on, onto the page and he loved it. And he, well, he didn't like, so originally it was alternating chapters, my point of view and his, and that ultimately became two separate books. But he, he said, well, I like the chapters about me. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't so much like those chapters about what happened to his family when he walked out on them, but he mm -hmm. never said he didn't want me to publish it. He, he said, wow, where'd you learn to write like this? And he, he wanted me to publish it. So it, it sort of, it just allowed us this opportunity to heal. And then I started going down to see him every year, towing the kids along when they came along and we would always work on it. He, we would read, I, we'd read chapters and he'd add more information to it and stuff. And he kept filling in details until the last time I saw him even. 
So it just took me a long time working full time and having two kids. It just was on the back burner for a long time. Mm. So um, when the kids got a little older and I had more free time was when I was able to actually finally finish them. And um, I tried to get it. Well, we can go into the publishing process later if you want. So that's how it happened. You know, those, those stories sort of poured out of me in the first year, but then it took another decade or so to (laughs) really finish them. Yeah. So, So, and maybe that, that helps answer the next question because, you know, when I talk to people that write down their memoirs, their traumatic events, you know, there's, there's people that are in a lot of different camps that, you know, writing kind of was a healing process and it, it helped them kind of come to grips. There's people who had put it to bed a long time ago and it was just trying to get it all down and trying to remember the the story. So where were you with everything? You wrote, you started over a decade ago. So maybe in a totally different spot in your, your journey than you were when it finally came out. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's pretty insightful, Jackson. It, it was, I think memoir is always, well, I don't know if it always is often it's very cathartic because there was a lot of stuff that came out that didn't stay in the book, right? A lot, you know, because there was a, just a, a, there's a lot to those stories. And obviously they became two books because it was going to be a really long book with those alternating chapters. So um, I would say it was very cathartic. And I think that for me, the writing of it and the sharing it with my dad is really what allowed us to have a relationship in the end because it allowed him to finally say, you know, I don't feel good about what I did to you kids and your mom, you know, and I'm trying to live right now, you know, and it allowed me to say, you know, I forgive you. And so I will be forever grateful for that. You know, I, I, as I said, he's passed away, but I'm really glad that he didn't pass away without us having a really good relationship as good as it could be. You know, we, we could talk about anything. Um, and I'm grateful for that. It was very healing. So yeah, I would say very, it was very healing for my relationship with my dad. And I think for me, you know, a lot of stuff I, like I said, I didn't put in there um, just because of the the creative process of writing a book. I mean, a memoir, the thing about memoirs is they need to read like a novel. They have to have a beginning and a sort of a, you know, a climax and an end. And so there's only so much that can go in there. And there was a lot of stuff in there. I was like, well, this is a really compelling part of the story, but if it didn't move the story forward, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a compelling part of my life or my relationship with my dad, but if it didn't move the story forward, then it, you know, I didn't leave all those in. So by the end though, I mean, I was almost like she was a character. I mean, it was almost, I was that much into the craft of writing by then. That, and I did a lot of critique group with um, other writers. And so we we always talked about the characters. So whether it was memoir or fiction, it was like, well, this main character, what this main character is doing is confusing here. So by the end, I felt like it was a character in a book, mm-hmm. not me. I mean, you know, not, yeah. I wasn't dissociated, but, you know, it was just yeah. I was more detached and more emotionally removed. And, and that's probably the other part of why it took me so long to publish it is I couldn't really publish it when it was a little more raw for me. Mm. And so by the time I published it, it was less, I mean, there's some really personal stuff in there, but it was just, I was just less attached to people knowing that and what would people think kind of stuff. Right. Right. Mm. And what was the, what was the toughest part of writing your first book? Because there's, I mean, there's good and there's bad when it comes to writing 
made up stories or writing a, a memoir. Obviously, when it's made up, you can change things. You know, when you go to that critique group and somebody says, oh, this was kind of boring. That isn't good. Okay, well, they did something totally different. We'll change it. But the good part of the memoir is you know where it began and you know where it ends. You just got to make it work so you don't have to make up stuff. But that also limits you. So talk about kind of the the struggles of, of a first uh, first time writer. Maybe it wasn't struggle at all, but talk about that. Oh, totally. No, it was a struggle. You know, this, the hard part for me about memoir is I don't want to impact negatively anybody else's life. Mm -hmm. So um, my father asked that I, that was the one thing he did ask is that I not use his name. Mm -hmm. So uh, Walker is actually a pseudonym. I write under that pseudonym because I have my father's last name still. And he asked that it would not be used. And when I got the court records, I realized, you know, he was arrested with um, people from the Gambino family, the mafia family in New York, the big Gambino family. And so I was like, well, maybe he's also protecting us because when I was writing it, it was only maybe um, 10, 15 years after his arrest. So, I mean, I didn't know if those people were still alive. So I, so there was that. So I, I, I used a pseudonym for my last name and, um, that also gave me some separation from my my not just the people I wrote about to give them some privacy. I changed all their names too, again to protect their privacy because I needed to be honest and I had to write about other people, but I didn't want to impact anyone. And so that was the hardest part for me. Um, you know, like my brother or my mom or you know any of the people I knew. So that just was something I felt very committed to was protecting other people's privacy and their identities. And then the other thing about memoir is it's my memory, right? It, I mean, I did corroborate a lot of my dad's story with court records and newspaper articles and, and interviewed other people too. But, you know, my story is my memory and his story is his memory. And we all remember things differently. My brother might have a different memory or not have a memory at all of something that I do. So um, I, I try to be very true to what I recall happening and a lot of focus on what I saw and heard instead of what I think somebody felt, right? Because that's observable. And then dialogue is always hard in memoir because one cannot remember exactly. You won't even remember tomorrow exactly what you and I talked about. Well, you have a recording. <laughs> right. So I tried to be very true. If I had to recreate dialogue, try to be really true to the essence of what I believe and recall happened. And so that's just always, and I, I didn't want to make up dialogue, but sometimes you just have to put a scene in there that involves dialogue. You just have to. You can't just tell everything in a memoir. No one will want to read it. So I think memoirs always have a little trouble, trouble with that. And so I put a disclaimer in the front of the book about that as well, because I just want to be very transparent, you know, that this is based on my memory and some dialogue is recreated. So those were the hard parts. Yeah. And you, sure. you, you foreshadowed a moment ago, what was, what was the publishing part of it? Uh, was, was that a struggle or was that something that was, was easily done? I don't know whether you found a publisher, you self-published where, where, where we're at with that. Yeah. I totally self-published those books. I, I pitched Midnight Calling to 60 literary agents. So you can't traditionally publish without an agent. It's, I mean, you just can't, the, the big houses don't want to see anybody that's not represented by an agent. So you have to get an agent first. 
and I pitched it to 60 who represent memoir and six responded. So 10% response rate. And they were very nice rejections. I mean, there was a form letter or two, but I have had one say, if you were famous, the industry would snatch this right up, but it's very hard to publish memoir. And you're, because you're not a famous person, if you look at who publishes memoir, it's actors and journalists and, you know, rock stars and stuff. So, I mean, that's who traditionally gets published. So after that, I thought, well, I'm just going to start learning about how to self-publish because, you know, uh, my critique group loved it. A lot of people that had read it said, this has got to see the light of day. So I just, it was during the pandemic, actually, and I had less, I had more free time because I wasn't commuting to work. You know, I had a bit of a commute. So I just started learning how to traditionally publish. And I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with the big Amazon because they're they're a beast, right? But they have brought traditional publishing to their knees. Anybody can publish now because of Amazon. So I I have it on Amazon, but I also went what's called wide. So I wanted it to be available in bookstores also because bookstores won't buy from Amazon. So I also published through another distributor so it can be in bookstores. And um, I just, yeah, so I had to learn that whole process, learn how to do it, and then learn how to do some promotion and marketing. So I learned it all and just self-published. And now I love it because I get 70% of my royalties from Amazon. If you traditionally publish, you get five, Mm -hmm. 5%, all that work for 5%. So I'm kind of happy. I like it. I mean, it's doing really well. So, I mean, I might not be so happy if it wasn't doing really well. It's got a lot of reviews on Amazon. It's a bestseller on both of them are. It's one, both of my books are, have won awards. So I feel really grateful. I'm really, really grateful. Yeah. And I mean, I I feel like you've kind of, you found that, uh, that happy spot with Amazon because I've interviewed people, you know, New York Times bestselling authors that were self or they were traditionally published for years and years and years. Then they went to Amazon. The big thing is it's very easy to put a book on Amazon, but it's very hard with thousands of books to get anybody to look at it. So exactly. once you've got a name or you, once you've got a book that somebody wants to read, then you're just in like Flynn when it comes to, uh, to, to Amazon and just continuing to write when you want without deadlines, all that kind of stuff. But I, I like to hear that. The, the book world, I had no idea before I started this podcast. It's it's wild. I mean, it is, it's insane when it comes to just how I always, I always share this one because it's just so crazy to me how some of these books become New York times bestsellers that are garbage books, but there's money behind them. A lot of times these authors that got money, they just buy 30,000 of their own books, put them in a warehouse, let it get big with a New York times bestseller that all that matters is sales and then resell their books to, to Amazon. So that's, I, I did not hear that one. Shit, I should try that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, have, I don't have the money though. That's there's the, the key. Yeah, if you've got money to buy thirty thousand of your own books, you can make it a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> that's the thing too. It is all sales. I I'm just really happy that it's resonating with readers because that's all I really wanted is to I wanted the stories to see the light of day. And I am so touched by reviews that get posted and people email me. I get the most touching emails like this couple emailed me whose daughter is a total addict, you know, and they're so fearful for life. And they just said it gave them hope, Hmm. you know, to see my story and how far I went and how I recovered. And so, I mean, that stuff like that just blows me out of the water. But also they say self-published 
authors on average sell, I think it's like 250 books. Mm -hmm. And so I have that in my mind. I thought that could be all that happens, right? But I've sold, you know, thousands and thousands. I mean, I'm not a New York Times bestseller by any means, but I've been doing very well for a self-published author. I'm very grateful. But I, I don't know. I think it's because I think it's easier with memoir, I will say, because novels are there's so many of them. And I think nonfiction books have a bigger market, a bigger share of the market than novels, I think. And so that is part of it, I think. And I think people are hungry for true stories. I think they just like them. So I think that's part of the success, you know, and I have done a lot of marketing and promotion too. So mm -hmm. I'm really happy about it. I'm working on my next book too. And I think someone said, well, maybe you should um, talk to an agent and see if they'll represent you now. And I'm like, I'm not going to now because I like getting 70%. I have complete control. Like if I want to change a cover or change a spelling error in my book, I can. But if you're traditionally published, I don't think you can. Yeah, so. I was I was about to ask you about where you are as an author because obviously you've written your dad's story, you've written your own story. I I mean, no offense to your mom, but I'm not sure whether she has a compelling story. Maybe she does. Maybe she's a a double agent or something too. But what what what's what's the next story going to be about? For you know, as much as you can share. A lot of people ask about my mom too. I've had a lot of emails about that. So I'm and I've made a commitment not to talk about, you know, my family much, you know, except to just say she's fine and alive and we're very close. So my next book is, it's kind of a sequel to Midnight Calling, but I said, I cannot write another heavy book because Midnight Calling is pretty heavy. So it's very, I'm shooting for humorous, self-deprecating, but it is definitely sort of picking up where Midnight Calling left off. But I'm, it's really more about just the ways that we, delude ourselves right and 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 the price of doing that but it's much more lighthearted and self-deprecating and and it's not so much about you know addiction and and the dark places that addiction takes us to so but it is a memoir and i would say it's kind of a sequel to midnight calling so i'm i've made my commitment that i'm halfway through and my critique group's laughing as they're reading it so i'm like yes <laughs> So I'm hitting that mark. I wanted it to be a little light, lighthearted. So do, do you plan on staying in the nonfiction space? Is is that more where you're comfortable? You know, I I have one of my writing critique members. She and I are talking about co-writing a romance because hmm. they sell so much. I mean, if you can sell a romance, I mean, I just gag at the thought of it because I'm not okay, I'm not criticizing. I just don't like romance novels. It doesn't speak to me and it feels fakey and very formulaic, but whatever. People love them and they sell like hotcakes if you're good at it. And she she's really good at writing funny. And I, she says, I will write the sex scenes because she doesn't want to write the sex scenes. And, and we were thinking about trying to co-author like a, a more lighthearted, you know, romance or something so i don't know i don't know if i really will we i've talked about it but i'm not in this for the money i did quit my full-time job last year so i could keep writing so with my husband's support so um i am full-time author now which is a big deal and it gives me so much more time to write so i have been playing around with kind of some novels you know but I, somebody said you should write cop stories because I've got a lot of that from dads, but mm -hmm. I don't know. So far, I'm just working on this next memoir. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the working title is a perfectly good fantasy. Yeah. 
sort of talking about, you know, the way we fantasize about things and delude ourselves. So yeah, yeah, we'll that could change the timing. Well, if you can get into the cop world, I know there's a huge niche for that. You know, I, t- I talked to a guy who was a former New York City police detective that, you know, he said, there's so many, so many people want to read these books. I've only got so many stories. I've re I've told every story in my 20 year career. I have nothing else to say, but people are just pounding me for these new stories. So if and you can, you can get into that space. I think there's, there's room for it for sure. There are, that's the, I think that's that second biggest romance. And then the second one are those kind of thriller books, you know, or right. detective stories. They're very popular too. Right. So. Well, you, you've got a lot coming up. You know, you're, you're a full-time writer now. Congratulations with that. Tell us, how people can find these books, how people can connect with you and just uh, kind of wrapping things up here. Yeah. So you can get Breaking Midnight or Midnight Calling um, anywhere at any bookstore. If it's not in the bookstore, you could just order it. And they any, any bookstore anywhere in the world can order that book, mm-hmm. even if they don't have it on the shelf. Of course, you could get it from Amazon. So I always put the pitch out, though, for the local bookstores, the indie bookstores. Um if they're both an ebook and paperback, I do have Midnight Calling Out as a hardcover and as an audiobook. I, I'm an audiobook lover. I love audiobooks. They're very expensive to make, though. I still haven't recouped all the money I paid the actor to, to narrate it. So I'd love to do Breaking Midnight as an audiobook, but it's very expensive. So yeah, they're available anywhere. And, um, and anybody who wants to check out my website, lynnwalkermemoir.com or hook up with me on my social media is Walker Memoir. I'm on, I like TikTok and Instagram, but most, I got all these followers on Twitter, but no one ever, it's like crickets out there. I don't know. So, yeah. so I'm a lot, I'm on TikTok and Instagram a lot. So yeah, I love to hear from readers and other writers and yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time today. It's been great. Oh, I so appreciate your interest, Jackson. And I, I love this because now I know of a new podcast because I love podcasts too. So Very good. Very good. So that was Lynn Walker. Really great conversation. I urge you to check out her books. We just touched just a brief surface level of everything that happened in these books. We didn't want to give too much away. I I really, really do tell you, you should check out the books. There's so much happening. I think that... Uh, You'll gain even more respect for, for Lynn and, and the person that she is now, given some of the things that, that happened to her in the past. I think you're going to find her father's story extremely interesting and, and powerful as well. You know, we talked about this this in uh, in our conversation, but it just takes one wrong decision to completely shape somebody's life. And, and that's certainly the case with, with the drug dealers that... Uh, her father came in contact with and it's certainly the case for her father as well so i think that you're uh, you're really going to gain something from from checking out both books the links to her books will be in the show notes links to follow along with her will be there as well um, if you have not already follow this podcast would really appreciate that not enough podcast on instagram not enough with jackson f on facebook jacksonf.com that's amazing. Uh, even more amazing, leave that five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Leave that written review on Apple. Really would appreciate that. Uh, if you do nothing else, though, catch us next week. Another amazing guest. Uh, take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. 
But until then, keep being awesome.